Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of Balloons2Drones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lassley. All right, Brian, today we're going to talk about one of the most popular airplanes of all time. I don't know if it's your favorite. I don't actually know what your favorite airplane is. The, my favorite airplane is uh, my F-4 that has the six stars on it out on the terrazzo. That is a good answer. F-4 is always a solid answer in my book, as you know. Um, but what we're talking about today is definitely up there in the top aircraft, for me anyway. We're talking about the airplane that refuses to be retired. That is the A-10 Thunderbolt II, also known as the Warthog. Uh, so we're going to talk about A-10, but we're also going to talk about a lot of other stuff. And that includes what it's like to be a fighter pilot what it's like to be a leader in the military and what that means and what that takes from, from people that are doing it. So to do that, we're joined today by Colonel Kim Killerchick Campbell. She is a retired Air Force colonel who served in the Air Force for over 24 years as a fighter pilot and a senior military leader. She has over 100 combat missions. She's got a DFC, and she's also the author of the new book, Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage from Wiley Press. Kim, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, the A-10 is absolutely my favorite airplane. <laughs> awesome. Slightly biased. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's start where your book does with the events of 7 April 2003. Walk us through that particular engagement. Yeah, definitely a life-defining, life-changing moment for me. This was actually very early in my career. Uh, I had, uh, I've only at that point had been an A-10 pilot uh, for a couple years. I uh, had a quick deployment to Afghanistan before that, but this was uh, for Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, as you mentioned in early 2003. And this mission in particular was just like every other mission. Um, although the situation on the ground had become fairly intense at this point, our troops on the ground were up near Baghdad, and our role as A-10 pilots was to support the ground troops wherever they were at. So for us, that meant we took off from Kuwait, we would fly up to Baghdad, air refuel, and then we would just wait for a tasking. And on this day, unfortunately, the weather wasn't great. There were clouds covering Baghdad as far as we could see. And we kind of wondered if we were going to be able to do anything, if we were going to be able to make a difference. And then we heard this frantic call over the radio and our troops were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance. And, you know, it's kind of that moment of like, well, we're going to do everything we can. Uh, despite the weather, we're going to get in there as quickly as we can. And we proceeded right over the top of the target area, started looking for holes in the weather. And I just remember my flight lead quickly watching him as he just disappeared through the clouds. And he said, all right, Casey, it's your turn. And uh, found a hole in the clouds and dove down through. And as soon as I got down below the weather, now I could see this firefight. I mean, we were lower than we normally were, and I could see tracers and smoke, um, and it was, it was surreal. I mean, it was everything that we trained for and planned for. Our troops were on the west side of the Tigris River. The enemy was over on the east side of the Tigris River. They were firing rocket-propelled grenades in, into our troops, and our target was the enemy hiding underneath a bridge. And our role was to get in there as fast as we could and try to take out the enemy. Uh, about this time, as we're setting up for our attack, I start to see these puffs of some gray and white smoke and bright flashes now in the air uh, next to my cockpit. 
And that's when I realized how high threat the situation is. Not only is there a firefight happening across the river, but the enemy's actually shooting it up at us too. Um, but we have a mission to do. And so we proceeded with our attacks. We decided we were going to do just two passes each. And on my last pass, I remember just fine tuning my aim point, trying to get everything just right. You know, I'm young wingman at the time, trying to make sure I get everything right. I hit the weapons release button, seven rockets come down on the enemy. And then I'm just trying to pull away from the ground, get away from the threat, trying to climb up and get my energy back. And that's when I just feel and hear this loud explosion at the back of the airplane. And I knew immediately I was hit. There was no doubt in my mind. Um, the jet kind of nosed over, pointed down at Baghdad below. It was a pretty violent impact in many ways. I mean, I felt like I would say if you were maybe stopped in a car and got rear-ended, it would feel something like that. It just completely shoved me forward in the cockpit. I remember this bright red-orange fireball, and now my airplane is plunging to the ground, uh, pointing to Baghdad down below. And I instinctively just pulled back on the control stick and nothing, like nothing happened. And I remember, you know, obviously thinking, this is not good. Um, I looked down at those ejection handles and thought, this is about the last thing I want to do is eject over Baghdad. And uh, I realized, you know, I fell back on my training. I went back to you know, what do I do in an emergency? And it was try to figure out what's going on. I couldn't maintain control of the airplane. So I tried to analyze the situation, realized very quickly looking at all of the uh, systems in my cockpit that my hydraulics were completely depleted. They were at zero. Uh, and at this point, I knew I really had really only one option other than ejecting, which was to try to get the jet into our backup emergency system. Um, and thankfully, I flipped that switch and the jet started climb out and away from Baghdad. And that's kind of the first moment of where I thought I would survive the mission, where I knew that at least I could get out of the immediate danger uh, and uh, started to climb up and away from Baghdad. And then I had a whole lot more, to, a whole lot more to go to get home. Well, we will come back to that here in a little bit. But tell us about your path to aviation. You're clearly one of the ones who caught the bug early. And as I have read memoirs and autobiographies uh, over the years, there's clearly this moment where someone approaches a plane for the first time or they take a flight for the first time and they know that that's it. And so you're clearly one of the ones that get the bug at an early age. So tell us about your path to aviation. Yeah, I definitely caught it at an early age. Um, I decided in fifth grade uh, that I was going to be an astronaut. And the way that came about was fifth grade for me was 1986. Um, and I was watching the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And for me, there was something in that moment of watching the launch that was so exciting and thrilling and just this idea that, you know, these astronauts were off. And I, I was just excited watching it. And then completely devastated watching kind of the aftermath and the tragedy that unfolded. But I think there was something in that as I watched it with my, you know, parents, thankfully, um, talking through that with them, I realized that the astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was important and bigger than themselves and something that they were willing to risk their lives for. And there was something within that, that even at fifth grade, I just decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an astronaut and talk to my parents. And my dad uh, had been in the Air Force. He said, well, 
if you want to be an astronaut, a lot of them are pilots and a lot of them have come out of the Air Force Academy. So I was like, all right, that's what I want to do. I'm going to go to the Air Force Academy. I'm going to become a fighter pilot and uh, ideally go off someday to become an astronaut. What I didn't know was that back in 1986, that women weren't allowed to be fighter pilots at the time. I, had, I just had no idea. And my parents never told me that. They just encouraged me to work hard and have a good attitude. And, uh, you know, thankfully that ban was lifted in 1993 uh, when I graduated from high school and then went off to the Air Force Academy. So tell us about that transition going from, you know, how, tell us about how you got to the academy. And, and that wasn't necessarily a straight shot exactly, was it? But yeah, how do you go from being in high school, not sure what you want to do, but you know you want to be in aviation some way to being in the academy and going through that experience? Yeah, you know, for me, it was like you said, it, there was a switch flipped. It was like, as soon as I set this goal, this path, uh, I wrote it down on us. I had a, a gold star that I wrote, reach for the stars. And it hung from my ceiling um, in my bedroom, um, starting from fifth grade on. And I just kept it with me all those years. And it was just a constant reminder for me. Uh, I joined the Civil Air Patrol was one of the things that I did early on. Um, they showed up at my middle school and I was like, wait a second, they're my age. They're wearing an Air Force uniform and they're telling me I get to fly. Uh, so that was a great intro to the Air Force, to flying and aviation. And I was able to get some rides in a Cessna at a very young age that just reinforced to me it was exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, I worked really hard in school. I mean, I, I don't know if I cared about school as much uh, until I decided that I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. And then I realized how much I had to care about school. Um, but I got involved in a lot of different programs and extracurricular activities, you name it. I did everything I could. Um, sadly, I, I had great grades, but my SAT scores were, uh, we'll just call them below average. Uh, I, I took that test five times and got the same score five times uh, and just never really improved on it. So I knew that was going to be a bit of a struggle for me, but I figured everything else would kind of balance that out. Sadly, I uh, got a rejection letter from the Air Force Academy in April of my senior year of high school and was totally devastated. I mean, it was everything that I had wanted. I had worked so hard and yet it wasn't enough. Thankfully, I had, you know, teachers, mentors, coaches around me who were very supportive and encouraged me to keep after it and keep trying. And uh, I did. I decided I would write the Air Force Academy a letter every week. Uh, to the admissions office to tell them anything I had done to improve that I, you know, could do more push-ups or pull-ups or uh, got an A on a test, and then finally took the ACT and got better scores, which probably made the most difference. Uh, but eventually, I got my acceptance letter just a couple weeks before basic training. So, bit of a rocky road to start my journey. But uh, if anything, that rejection taught me the importance of perseverance and going after your goals and dreams. Um, and not quitting. I mean, and, and for me, that rejection letter meant that I didn't want to just survive the academy. I wanted to thrive. I wanted to excel. I didn't want to just be average. I really wanted to excel. So it set the stage for me for really the Air Force Academy and beyond. Yeah, one thing I love is that you actually get your acceptance letter on June 2nd, and you have less than a month uh, to get ready to get packed until you have to show up here uh, in Colorado Springs. That had to be a pretty quick turnaround. It was a quick turnaround. And I mean, I, I had alternate plans. I was going to UC San Diego and an Air Force ROTC scholarship. I mean, I think my life might have been very different. 
But, um, you know, I was, I was active already. So from a physical fitness standpoint, I had really started to work hard on that anyway. Um, but for me, it was all about how can I get ready in this last three weeks? What can I do? And, uh, I, you know, worked really hard to be physically fit. I made sure that I had started working in my combat boots. My dad and I would actually go run the hills in San Jose, California to make sure those boots were broken in, but I didn't have much time. And it was just how to get ready in a way where I also wouldn't injure myself or overdo it. So you're at the academy and you're going through that experience. How do you go from there to actually being in the seat of an A-10? And you know, you talk about this a little bit, you wanted to fly this aircraft, you had some concerns. You know, not everybody gets what they choose going in. So how do you go from from being a cadet to flying the Warthog? Yeah, you know, I eventually got that pilot slot after performing well at the Air Force Academy. Again, this idea that I was going to, I wanted to excel. I wanted to make sure I got my pilot slot. And I, you know, it's kind of like you make it to that point. You're so excited to make it to that point. And then I realized at pilot training, uh, it wasn't as easy as I thought it was. Uh, the flying wasn't bad, but I got airsick on almost every ride for the first three weeks at pilot training, which was a little bit of a kick in the gut, right? This was everything that I wanted. And it's this sudden thought of like, am I, am I really going to be okay at this? You know, can I make it through this? And there was definitely some doubt. Uh, but eventually I, I got over it and made my way through and flew well enough that I got my way into uh, or worked my way into flying the fighter track and then perform well enough there to be at the top of my class to pick the aircraft I wanted. Uh, for me, it was all about picking a mission. And I realized that I love the low level missions. Like I really enjoyed that. The The formation work was great. I wasn't as good at it. I was really good at the low level missions and I had a lot of fun. And after talking to A-10 pilots, I realized that this mission of close air support of helping troops on the ground, helping them get home safely to their families. Like for me, that was just something that I connected with. And uh, I chose the airplane because of the mission. Um, I probably didn't know as much about it as I should. Um, keep in mind, this was all pre 9-11. So very different environment um, where we were at. But um, I'm so thankful that I made that choice because I've absolutely loved flying the A-10. There is, for me, no greater passion and purpose than supporting our troops on the ground. And we'll come back to to more of that close air support mission in a few minutes here. But one of the things I really loved uh, about your book, uh, and Mike's going to laugh at me when I when I ask this question, but you use Red Flag as an example in your book of of planning ahead. And what I really enjoyed is it's not only Red Flag's not only about preparing for combat, but it also other events in life, right? And tell us how you use uh, those realistic training exercises. Yeah, Red Flag is an incredible exercise because it really puts you in a position of stress and pressure and really pushing you to your limits. And the reason Red Flag was created was initially, you know, so many pilots, you know, we lost a lot of pilots during Vietnam. And there was this idea, well, if that you could survive your first 10 missions, then you'd be better off. And so that was this idea of how do you create those first 10 missions in a training environment? And so the idea is to put you in a very stressful, high threat, high risk environment that is relatively safe um, in training uh, to prepare you for that combat role. But part of that is the preparation that goes into it. It's not just get in the airplane and fly. There are days of preparation that go into it. 
Uh, and for me, my first red flag was I got an opportunity to be a mission commander. So to lead the red flag exercise. And we spent, um, you know, I would say days preparing where we would really go through everything in detail, you know, preparing for the mission, understanding the mission, and then practicing by doing a walkthrough, you know, talking through everything and planning for contingencies, thinking about those things that could go wrong on the mission. Um, it was, I think, you know, I learned a lot in Red Flag that I use in my flying career, but I have also used a lot of the same things in my everyday life, just in, in terms of the importance of preparation and practice and planning for contingencies. Because when we're faced with a stressful situation, whether it's, you know, flying a mission at Red Flag or just something in our everyday lives, the more we prepare and then practice and plan for those contingencies, the the better we are you know, we, we become more competent when we do that. And I think that also gives confidence. So I've used that throughout my life, whether it's in a, a leadership role, personally with my family, uh, putting in preparation is, is huge. And I, I try to keep, teach my kids the same thing as well. We love talking about red flag all the time. I think both <laughs> Brian and I are, are really interested in that. And, you know, everybody knows about the Navy's Top Gun, but not everybody knows about red flag. So we like to talk about that as much as we can. Uh, I wanted to go back. You mentioned, um, so the combat exclusion law gets repealed uh, right around the time you're getting in the pipeline. Um, and we've had previous episodes of this show where we've talked about some of the women that flew in World War II and then some of the women that were flying non-combat roles in the 70s. So by the time you are getting into combat, you know, it's been, you know, women have been flying combat for about 10 years or so. I'm just curious, what was your experience like going into that culture did you face any kind of interesting cultural challenges or was it pretty smooth sailing? Well, I think when I showed up to my first fighter squadron, um, so we're talking 2001, uh, by the time I'm done with all my training, uh, it's uh, 2001, 9-11 has just happened. Uh, and I show up to my very first fighter squadron, the 75th fighter squadron uh, at Pope Air Force Base. I knew I was going to be the only female pilot in the squadron. Um, there had been a, a female pilot before me, but I was going to be the only one at the time. And I think for me, I personally put a lot of pressure on myself. Like I just felt like if I made a mistake or if I failed in some way that I would ruin it for the women that followed me. And that's not pressure that anybody else put on me. That was just pressure, kind of my own thinking going in. But what I realized is, you know, any new person in a unit, any new pilot in a squadron, male or female, is going to be judged. There's going to be some evaluation of, you know, how do you perform? And that's really what it came down to for me as I realized the importance of putting in the work, right? That preparation, the practice, the planning for contingencies, again, uh, repeated itself here just in terms of put in the work, be credible, work hard, have that good attitude. And for me, that that was it. That was all I needed. I put in the work. I worked really hard. And the guys in my squadron just wanted to see that I was credible and capable in the airplane. Um, I was able to do that uh, both in training and then very quickly uh, in combat because of the situation that we were in. And, you know, I realized that, you know, they just cared that I was credible and capable in the airplane and the rest didn't matter. So you mentioned several other what I would call fighter pilot isms uh, in the book, New Day, New Jet. Uh, aviate, navigate, communicate. And so I think that this book, for those of us who, who have military experience, might recognize some of these, but I think it's really applicable uh, for folks not in the military. So tell us a little bit about how you use these, you know, what I call these fighter pilot isms uh, and how they're applicable to folks not in the military. 
Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the been the interesting thing throughout my career is I realized so many of these lessons that I learned that sometimes originated from flying. They had so much application outside of the flying world as well. And uh, you mentioned aviate, navigate, communicate, which is, you know, it seems like just uh, for for flyers, it's something that we learn very early in our flying, just in terms of how do you prioritize in an emergency? How do you, you know, make sure make sure that you can maintain a sense of calm under pressure? Um, but aviate, navigate, communicate is something I use in my everyday life as well, because when we're faced with an emergency or a crisis or just a difficult situation, we have to focus on what's most important first. And that's this idea of aviate, right? In an emergency in an airplane, let's say you get hit with an enemy missile over Baghdad, I realized in that moment, aviate, I was really just focusing on getting that airplane under control. And then eventually I could navigate, finding that path of where I needed to go and then communicating to let my flight lead know that I had been hit. But in my everyday life in a crisis, it's all about what's most important. What do I need to focus on? What are my priorities? And then I need to navigate. I need to have this clear path, a goal, an objective in mind, um, even in a crisis. And I need to communicate. I need to communicate that to others, especially if I'm a leader of a team. I need to communicate that path and where we're going. Um, But I think it's also a reminder that in that crisis or difficult moment, we also need to communicate if we need help to let other people know. Uh, So there's so many things. It's been fun for me to reflect over the years to kind of see the parallels of those early lessons that we learn in flying and how they relate to my professional life as I progress throughout my career. I used a lot of them as a leader of teams, but then also my, you know, my personal life with my family. And then now outside of the military, how many of those themes are very consistent. So picking up that story about being hit by the missile, I think we left uh, our listeners on a little bit of a cliffhanger there. So you mentioned being able to kind of aviate, navigate, communicate through that experience. Walk us through that landing. How did you get the jet home and what was that like? It was the longest hour of my life. (laughs) Uh, You know, surviving that initial hit was one thing, but then I had an hour trip home. Uh, We were over Baghdad. I had an hour of flight time, 300 miles um, in an A-10. Uh, back to our home base in Kuwait. And now I'm flying a very heavily damaged airplane that is very difficult to fly. Um, I had emergency jettisoned everything off the airplane so that I could climb. Um, But flying home was still incredibly difficult. Um, A lot of people talk about flying in this backup emergency system, which we call manual reversion. It's like driving a dump truck or a semi truck without power steering. It's just heavy. And it's a hard airplane to fly. Uh, my other problem was that I had emergency jettisoned everything except for uh, an electronic countermeasure pod that was out on my very left wingtip. And that meant that if I took my hands off the stick at all, the airplane just wanted to roll. Uh, and so I fought that the entire way back. So it was a long flight home, kind of fighting the airplane a little bit. And then knowing that I had a decision to make, whether I was going to try to land the airplane, a heavily damaged airplane in this backup emergency system, or just get it back to friendly territory and eject. And for me, you know, I thankfully had a very experienced flight lead with me that provided that mutual support. We had a lot of conversations about it. Um, The winds, thankfully, back at the home base, straight down the runway. And I had an hour to kind of fly the airplane and get a feel for it. So I made the decision that I was going to try to land the airplane, knowing that it had only been done about three times previous um, in Desert Storm. 
And sadly, not all of those were effective. Um, We had a a pilot that we lost when he crashed on landing. And we had another pilot that was able to get the airplane on the ground, but uh, due to lack of brakes and steering, swerved on and off the runway several times. And uh, the airplane was destroyed. He was lucky to survive. And then there was a third situation, very similar damage to mine. The pilot was able to get the airplane on the ground safely. So I knew there was this glimmer of hope, right? There was a chance that I could do it too. And uh, after flying for an hour, I felt very confident. I recently had the opportunity to go back and listen to the audio from the mission. And I was kind of surprised at how confident I sounded when my flight lead asked me, are you sure you want to continue? Is this what, you know, just making sure that I, and I was like, yeah, I'm ready to continue with the landing. So uh, came into a friendly territory back into Kuwait, did a controllability check, which essentially means slow down, get the gear down, which is easier said than done. I had to do an alternate gear extension procedure for that, but uh, try to make sure the airplane was fully responding at the slower speed and configured to land and then made the choice that I was going to continue with the approach. Had a bit of a tricky time finding the runway with the standard haze and dust storms in Kuwait, uh, but eventually found the runway. Winds are still straight down the runway and again, decide to continue. And coming into that landing threshold, uh, felt like everything was very stable right until I got over the um, just above the runway. And then the airplane just kind of got in this ground effect. And I thought it was going to flip over. I mean, it just made this immediate roll. Thankfully, I was able to kind of grab the stick and level it all out and then uh, put the airplane on the ground. And what I would call for an A-10 pilot, a, a Navy style carrier landing, flew the airplane all the way to the runway, full power to the runway, uh, just to make sure that it would be safe. Those three wheels hitting the ground was such an immense feeling of relief, you know, knowing that I had made it, that I had survived and still had to get the airplane stopped <laughs> uh, with our alternate uh, emergency braking procedure and got it stopped. And then it was time to get out and see the damage. And I think a lot of our uh, viewers have seen photographs of your A-10 uh, sitting on the on the ground there. And, and if our listeners haven't, uh, I highly recommend doing a Google search for it. Uh, because that A-10 was, was pretty shot up, wasn't it? Yeah, I was kind of shocked. Like when I got out of the airplane, I, I didn't, I couldn't see the damage at all in, from the airplane when I was flying it. My flight lead gave me a, a description that it had hundreds of holes and a hole about the size of a football in that back horizontal stabilizer. Uh, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. But when I got out of the airplane and walked to the back, I was just, I was shocked. I mean, it was covered with hydraulic fluid, just dripping. There are holes everywhere, not just on the back, but all the way up towards the cockpit, uh, just shrapnel damage from the missile impact. And uh, the backside of the jet was completely charred, covered with, you know, dripping hydraulic fluid, but black and soft to the touch um, because at some point a fire had happened. So it was just amazing to me to see this extent of the damage and know that that airplane kept flying, you know, that it got me home safely. And you were very generous to donate a piece of that aircraft to Smithsonian Air and Space, which we're planning on putting on display around 2026 if if the schedule holds. So people who have seen the photos or, or maybe haven't seen the photos can actually see it in person, which would be really great. So we're very grateful to you for that. Yeah, that piece of the airplane stayed with me for 20 years. It was a, a cutout of the tail flash and uh, I had it on my wall in my uh, office throughout my careers in the Air Force and times 
in the Air Force and was able to share it with people. But once I retired, I, I figured it, it probably could find a better home. So I'm, I'm thankful that it'll reside in the Smithsonian, a place that certainly inspired me as a, a young aviator as well. And that particular aircraft is now a static display, right? It is. Unfortunately, Aircraft 987 never flew again after that mission. Uh, it uh, is now on display at uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. It's been fixed up. It's nice and clean and doesn't look like there was ever a, uh, any damage to it. But uh, the airplane 987 is still there, although lots of pieces of the damaged airplane are in different museums uh, around the country, uh, which is uh, a nice reminder of the just the amazing ability of that airplane. And I'd like to also mention that uh, 987 has also become a rather popular pair of shoes as well. Are you aware of that? I did. Someone shared those uh, a picture of those shoes with me. I do have a pair now. So uh, a pretty awesome set of shoes with shark's teeth on it and, uh, and the 987 tail number. So that was pretty exciting to see. Let me ask you one more question. You know, we've interviewed... Desert Storm MIG killers, we had the honor of having Apollo 13 astronaut Fred Hayes on the program, and those are all individuals who who could be defined by one event or one moment in their life, and each of them have also said, yeah, that happened to me, but I also want to be known for this, this, or, or this. How do you want to be defined? What do you want your legacy to be? I think, you know, that mission was a critical point in my career, is a critical point in my life. I think it taught me a lot about leadership and teamwork and just going through something hard together, um, the importance of having a wingman by your side. I mean, there were so many lessons that I learned from it, but it was really just an early point in my career. And I, you know, went on to serve 20 more years um, in the Air Force and uh, was able to lead teams, both small and large sizes. And for me, that ability to lead teams and to be back at the Air Force Academy where my career started to serve as the director of the Center for Character and Leadership Development to help inspire and and teach that next generation of leaders and aviators. To me, that is what's most important, to be able to take the lessons that I learned from that mission. Uh, you know, I don't want anybody to have to go experience anything like that, but I, I do want to share the lessons that I learned. And that that's part of the reason that I wrote the book was about this idea that the importance of sharing stories and, and lessons to help others, you know, whether it's mistakes and failures, struggles, successes, opportunities to share the lessons learned that goes with it is critically important. I know how much it helped me throughout my career. So that's my goal now is to do the same for others to help inspire this next generation of aviators and leaders. Well, for those out there who want to be inspired, again, the book is Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage by Kim Campbell, and that's from Wiley Press. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Where else can we find more of you online? I would say please reach out on social media if you've got the opportunity. Uh, my website is kim-kc-campbell.com. And it's got all the links to my uh, social media and email as well. If you have questions um, that you didn't get answered as you're listening through, uh, please reach out. You can find me on Twitter at KCHAWG987. Go figure. Uh, and uh, same on Instagram as well. Fantastic. Brian, where are you at online these days? So you can find me lurking around Twitter every so often, but if you want to get in touch, please find me at www.brianlastly.com. Uh, Mike, how about yourself? 
Well, I am at mwhankins.com, and all of us are, of course, online at balloons2drones.com. Thank you for listening. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloons2drones.com slash contact. If you'd like to submit an article for publication, please go to balloons2drones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you.